0: It's the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast. Coming in three, two, one.
1: There. Does that change everything? You can hear me now? They <laughs> can't hear you scream in space. No one can. Uh... In space, nobody can hear my uh, that I had the wrong device <laughs> muted or no Pamela around. Okay, there you go. Yeah, no, I at some point my computer hiccuped, and I think it re like it did a, a Windows update. And oh,
2: it- did you? Oh, you have a Windows update problem. Oh, guys. that
1: Windows update. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then everything. Otherwise, just- known as just why you use Linux, but <laughs> oh. Yeah i i I always like have this romantic notion. Every ten years or so, I go. That's it. I'm going to install Linux, and then it's just misery. And then I just go back to Windows. Well,
3: you know how when some you know how you can tell someone uses Linux? Mm, they, they tell, tell you.
1: <laughs> <laughs> also, that, I work
2: in I work in Silicon Valley. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah also, also that they yeah. do CrossFit. Yeah. Yeah, no. I uh, so I, I'm waiting. Actually, the the thing that I did that was kind of fun. I had a Chromebook, and you can dual boot it into uh, Ubuntu, and that's kind of cool because then you can also abandon it the moment it uh, starts to malfunction, and then just go back and forth. You can always just go for a Mac. Yeah, I mean the Mac has problems too. I, I used to run Mac, and now I just I got sick of the Mac too. I'm fine with Windows. The
3: old joke, you know. How many Mac users does it take to change a light bulb? None. When the light burns out, you buy a new house.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sounds about right.
2: Feeling called out today. Feeling called out.
1: Are you, are you, are you the Mac user?
2: (laughs) I I am when I'm down here. Yeah. Yeah. My upstairs is a, is a windows box, but this is a, a MacBook.
1: Right. Yeah. No, I, uh, well, one, I mean, they they sort of lost it. They they sort of went through a lot of bad machines back, like yeah. on the MacBook Pro, fairly recently. So, yeah, no, I I like my. Although my computer is getting really old, actually, it's it's constantly complaining that my bit rate isn't quite fast. It's saying that my audio. Oh, okay, I fixed it. Okay, good. Um, yeah, this computer is starting to chug trying to to do the live streaming, so I may need to stick a faster something in it. Yeah. I don't know what would be the, probably a faster processor. I mean, that's a great thing about PCs is you can just pull out the, the, the chip, put in a new chip, move on. So can't do that with a, with a Mac where even the Ram is welded to the motherboard.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It is a one box system. I call, I call them great grandma computers. <laughs> you give them to your grandma. She yeah. can't mess it up. Well, that's you the know, Chromebook.
1: She, but, I, give, I tell yeah, everybody to get the Chromebook. That, that's the new solution, but back in the yeah. day. All right. I'm going to say hi to a bunch of people. I forgot to do that. Hello to Andrew Planet, A.B. Cotton Flower, Bob Moeller, Brexit Denier, Corey S, David Dunn, David Fairweather, Eric Knapp, Frank Tippen, Hal McKinney, Horizon Brave, Ian Farquharon, Larry Beckham, Larry King, Luke Wilhelm, Nancy Gazzino, Neil U Nifty, Paranor, Arjon, Sergio Batero, Sergusi, Tesla Ranger, Trey Harmon, Uncle Bill Druin, Visto Tuti, and Zap Van. And. Hey, everybody. Alright, let's get started. Enough of this shenanigans. Alright, there's me. Here's my intro. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, June 17th, 2020. I'm Fraser Cain, publisher of Universe Today. This week, we're going to be talking about, finally, a mission to Neptune. Evidence building that the standard model is incomplete and a rare ring galaxy seen in the early universe. Joining me this week on my screen is Brian Koberlein. Brian, welcome back. Hi, everybody. It's good to be here again. And we've got, let's see, Chris. Greetings. Chris Carr. How's it going? Doing well? You've got the you've got a, a sort of an a sneak preview of uh, of what you're going to be talking about on uh, behind you, but I won't we won't go into any more detail until we get to your segment.
4: But I would use the background as a as an assistant.
1: Yeah, no, I, th- I think this is great. Actually, I'm pretty stoked on this idea that people are are taking pictures and putting them as their as their background. Speaking of backgrounds and things we're going to be talking about, we've got uh, Beth Johnson. Hey, Beth.
2: Hey, how's it
1: going, Frazier? Good, good. Uh, Again, I I mean, spoiler alert, you're going to be talking about Neptune. Neptune. Uh, But (laughs) until that point, I just want to uh, give everybody a reminder that if you want to be part of this incredible community go to the Weekly Space Hangout Crew. That's WSHcrew.space. They will hook you up. They'll give you your executive producer privileges and so that you can invite cool guests onto the show. And just a reminder that we've only got two more episodes before we go on to our summer hiatus. So uh, next week's episode uh and then the episode after that and then we will be gone until september so you really should now is your chance if you want like a bookmark into all things weekly space hangout uh you should make sure that you join the crew wshcrew.space and speaking of interesting guests this week we've got uh, dana backman dana welcome to the weekly
0: space hangout thank you for the invitation all right so who are you what do you do I am an astronomer who is uh, spending all of uh, my time uh, uh, recruiting and training high school teachers to fly on the NASA Flying Observatory Sophia, so they can see the scientific process and take that back to their classrooms, and that is a lot of fun. Uh,
1: Sophia is easily one of my favorite missions, a gigantic infrared telescope bolted onto the side of an airplane that just flies around and takes pictures of the sky. I love it. Uh, What is this? So what is the process? If you are a high school teacher and you want to participate in this, how does it work?
0: What you need to do, NASA has asked us to Recruit districts uh, rather than individual teachers. So, what you need to do if you're excited by this uh, is get your school district science coordinator to contact me, and uh, I'm, I'm uh, D Backman at uh, SETI.org. Um, um, you can find that, I suppose, somehow. Uh, but anyway. Uh, look, good, go to the SETI Institute's website and look for AAA, Airborne Astronomy Ambassadors, and uh, you will see how to contact us anyway. You need to get your district to um, talk to us about getting a memo of understanding, and then we will work with them to recruit uh, teachers from your district. And I'm happy to say, starting next year, that we're extending to middle school and to community colleges. So, um, it's been high school up to this point, but now we're, we're extending the, uh, the age range. Uh, so, uh, but anyway, the first step is to get your district talking to us and then, uh, we're, we'll be selecting the 2021 teachers in the fall of 2020. Right,
1: and and what is the like? What's the commitment if you want to be a part of the one of these one of these missions? How does the
0: whole thing work? You uh, sign on for a six month series of webinars where we train you um, in what what to expect, what's going to happen, wh- why Sophia uh, works the way it does. Then we give you a summer face to face workshop where we train you in the curriculum module that we want you to have in your classroom after your flights. So it's a two-week curriculum based on NASA materials that the teachers uh, are committed to teach in the, in the uh, school year after their flights. And uh, then uh, you have committed to a week away from your school uh, to come out to California to fly on Sophia.
1: And uh, I know that Sophia flies from a bunch of places, from, from uh, New Zealand sometimes, from California sometimes, Europe sometimes. Um, and, so, and so how long will an actual flight take if you actually? Ten
0: hours. It's an all-night all flight, and we do our best, uh, you know, uh, Sophia's schedule, uh, notwithstanding, to get the teachers to fly twice in, during the week. And it's, uh, our teachers are always flying out of uh, Southern California, the main, Sophia's uh, home base. Right.
1: And and what kinds of scientific missions is Sophia, you know, normally going to look
0: at? Well, it's a general scientific observatory. So the astronomers apply to look at uh, planets, stars, galaxies, star-forming regions, um, you name it. Uh, Sophia's not particularly a cosmological tool, but anything else uh, uh, out to nearby galaxies and all the way into the moon. um, uh, Astronomers apply for time on it, just like on a a regular ground-based observatory or the Hubble Space Telescope. So it could be anything, um, uh, a mix of things on a given night.
1: Uh, and, and so then like, just trying to understand, like for the experience of the teacher, I mean, obviously the, the telescope is in its own separate compartment of the airplane. The airplane is flying around in circles, um, doing its observations, um, zigzags, zigzags. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at as, as calm and stable an altitude as possible. So what kinds of activities, like what do the teachers do? Are they, are they roaming around? Are they looking over people's shoulders? Are they learning?
0: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we ha- we have our own dedicated console, which uh, when this was originally envisioned, when the Sophia uh, project uh, uh, had its inception in in '96, um, there was a console designed in for the teachers to sit at, at where we uh, we have the basically the same display, read-only uh, 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 display that's seeing what the telescope operators are seeing. So we're seeing, you know, the operations of what's going on where, uh, but if they want to talk to the scientists, then I escort them up to the console where the the astronomers are sitting and we plug in our headsets and talk to them. And yes, so I try to, uh, we we have our home base of our own console, but we try to circulate around and ask everybody. One of the important lessons that they're bringing back to their students is the wide variety of experiences and uh, careers. That brought people to be part of the Sophia mission, and not just astronomers. There's very few astronomers actually, but uh, uh, people who've done all sorts of things, and now they're on part of this mission. And so they want the teachers can bring back to their students that you could picture yourself in this in this scene. So I have them. I have the teachers talk to uh, everybody who's on board. That's probably 20 people normally in a normal situation. Ask them what they're doing. How they're doing it. I'm supposed to make sure that somebody's not sweating bullets when a t- uh, t- teacher comes up to, uh, right. to ask questions, right? You know, yeah. be sensitive to whether there's a crisis going on. But anyway, um, we, 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 we monitor what's going on. They ask the astronomers how they designed their experiments. They, uh, they talk to everybody about what's going on. Uh,
1: a Neko girl is asking in the chat, how is Sophia stabilized? How do you stabilize a telescope like that on the side of an airplane?
0: The telescope, 17 tons of telescope is floating on a bearing, uh, a double sphere with a hydraulic fluid layer between the two spheres. So uh, the vibrations of the plane are mostly damped out, Uh, not really affecting the telescope. But also there's a, a software feedback where we have a visible light guided camera that's looking at either the target or a nearby uh, fiducial star. And there's a software feedback loop that keeps us pointed at, uh, uh, takes out the uh, whatever residual vibrations there are. So um, the telescope is pointed sort of by the plane turning partly. Then the the fine tuning is with this guider system and the telescope is floating. That's the short, short, medium, short answer.
1: And I know that, that for, um, you know for For astronomy and for infrared observatory, I mean obviously a space telescope that big would be lovely. but how does how does this compare as an, you know as an airborne observatory compared to, say a, a ground-based large telescope, infrared telescope, like something well, you might put in Chile?
0: couple of points it's, it's, it's almost exactly the same size as Hubble. It's a two point five meter diameter uh, telescope. Um, it, uh, the, a ground-based observatory, even at a high site like in the Andes or on Mauna Kea, cannot receive far-infrared radiation. It does not get through the Earth's atmosphere's water vapor. Mm-hmm. So by SOFIA, by being above the uh, atmospheric water vapor, can uh, have access to a region of the spectrum from about 30 microns wavelength to 300 microns wavelength that you cannot do any, from any ground site. Uh, at all, don't matter how big the telescope, is.
1: right? So this is literally a, a wavelength that we just cannot access from down
0: right. on the ground, right? So you could think of Sofia as a low-flying space telescope. Yeah, uh, we, we're able to do eighty uh, percent of of the acuity of the access to the infrared wavelengths that a space telescope would. Yeah.
1: It's it's surprising to, and the, one of the real advantages of a of a ground-based telescope, or in this case, an airborne telescope, is just the, the fact that you can go, you can upgrade it, you can change, switch out the gear on it, you can continue to improve it without having to send the space shuttle and a billion and a half dollars and astronauts right. and train them, and <laughs> exactly. you know as what we saw with Hubble. Uh, have there been plans to build other airborne-based? Observatories. It seems like a like a pretty good sweet spot for this.
0: I know this is the this is the third and the largest. There was a, a, a Learjet with a ten inch telescope. Then there was a, the Kuiper Airborne Observatory that was a thirty six inch telescope in a C one forty one cargo jet. And then Sophia is now a two and a half meter telescope in a seven forty seven. And Sophia's is too uh, young in its in its career for the people to be thinking about the next um, the next step. But it's sort of this is the widest body aircraft that we could buy in 1996. So you uh, you know to put a bigger stuff a bigger telescope than this, you you would need a much bigger airplane. We didn't build the planes; uh, uh, custom, wasn't custom made for this. It's a it was a used. It's an airliner, right? It's a United Airlines airliner that we bought, yeah, and chopped.
1: So like a later on, I don't know, like an Airbus or something. It was like there's not yeah, much that would, that's
0: bigger, right? Than a seven forty seven. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, someday. Yeah, someday, someday. Well, uh, uh, you know, a balloon could potentially carry a, a bigger telescope to a higher altitude, yeah.
1: And and do. I mean, I know that there's a ton of, of balloon-based missions as well as suborbital rockets if you, you're willing to only look at something for about two minutes before your rocket comes back. Um, but I think it's a great – I mean, it's a very creative. I think it's a really great platform for a lot of astronomy. It really is that nice balance between – between a, a giant ground-based observatory that still has to deal with all of the the atmosphere, but a space telescope, it's, as, as you say, you know, as close as you can get to being in space. Um,
0: over the course of an evening, is SOFIA looking at a bunch of different targets? Yes, yeah, so usually six to, six to ten targets would be typical in a night, and they would be uh, from uh, multiple different astronomers' proposals. So it's not, um, when I was... Uh, being a graduate student uh, or a postdoc and doing ground-based astronomy, usually you'd have the telescope to yourself for the whole night for whatever your projects were. Uh, in this case, we're interleaving half a dozen different uh, 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 astronomers' projects on a given night, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And so they, and, and in this case, often the airplane itself changes its trajectory depending on what target is being, is being looked at with that yes, zigzag. Yes,
0: each, 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 it's a zigzag all over the Eastern Pacific and the, uh, and the Western U.S. and each zig is a different object.
1: Right, right. And so I'm, I'm assuming the, the, the planning in advance is very complicated. There, what are some, some recent discoveries that Sophia has participated
0: in that maybe people are familiar with? Uh, uh, one of the big ones uh, in the last year was that uh Sophia detected in the interstellar medium the uh, molecule that 's inferred to have been the first molecule to have formed after the big Bang, so it wasn 't spotting this molecule a helium hydride by the way, your high school chemistry teacher told you that helium doesn 't make compounds yes, it can if you if you push on it hard enough so uh, helium helium with a with a proton added. Um, that molecule would have been the first one to form as the universe cooled after the Big Bang and uh, was detected by Sophia in uh, a planetary nebula um, uh, context. So um, doing checks on cosmology by uh, doing, looking at nearby objects, that was, uh, that's, a, that's one, of the, one of the ones that, that uh, comes to mind first.
1: Um, Neil Yu is asking, uh, is Sophia always above the weather?
0: Yeah. Oh, well, uh, I mean, yes, above the above clouds and water vapor layer, although we get turbulence. And then uh, in the situation where we have to strap down, so does the telescope. So we stop working for, you know, however long it's bumpy. But uh, but above above clouds, uh, almost entirely. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. So so again, it's it's kind of like a weather your own weather machine. You know, while well, astronomers at the mountaintops are stuck with whatever weather is passing uh-huh. through their system, yeah, you're able to just fly above it and ignore most mm-hmm. of it, which I think is which is just uh, in, incredible. Um, fantastic. So once again, uh, Dana, if people are teachers, uh, like,
0: who is this open to? Um, any U.S. Um, citizen or green card holder uh, who has uh, their district... Um, uh, work out a memo of understanding with the city institute Uh, right now we have um, 13 active districts in eight states and uh, we're happy to add more
1: fantastic and then and again if people want to apply where should they go
0: then we'll work with their district to um, uh, uh shepherd them through an application process which is uh, usually open in the fall and then we have a peer panel review the applications so the 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 district will do all the p r mm-hmm. and and that kind of stuff
1: But dot right. uh, org slash a a a right yeah
0: city yeah. dot org slash a a so the the uh, application opportunities get announced there. Um, instructions, uh, criteria for applying, and so on, our study.org slash AAA. Right.
1: Well, I, again, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. And you're going to stick around and, uh, and join sure. the peanut gallery as we talk about different uh, topics in space and astronomy. Feel free to jump in if uh, any of these personally resonate with you as we, uh, as we move through them. So, um, all right. Thank you again. And, uh, and anyone that sounds like an amazing opportunity. So if you're a teacher, if you are an educator, you live in the U S, uh, get on this. What a great opportunity. All right. Uh, Chris, tell us what you got.
4: Well, I bring news from the early universe. So, so I guess, I guess I'm kind of the galaxy guy here. So galaxies come in all shapes and sizes and, uh, But overall, they do have some categorical consistencies in those shapes and sizes and in their structures. And so we call this galactic morphology. And so uh, the common features of galactic morphology are like spiral arms or bars. But you also get this rare bunch of galaxies that have some striking features. Uh, And and one of these odd groups are known as ring galaxies. Uh, And right behind me, I have an example uh, of a (laughs) ring galaxy. So this is the uh, Cartwheel galaxy, one of the examples of uh, of a ring galaxy in our in the lo- in our local universe. Uh, and so the so one of the big discoveries uh, that that happened so earlier this month was the first discovery of a ring galaxy from the early universe. And so this work done uh, so this work was done by Dr. Yuan. Uh, she, uh, she was she's part of the uh, Astro three D group, which is a a research uh, gov- government-funded research initiative uh, from Australia, uh, and so so part of this work uh, is they were looking at disc spar- uh, and spiral galaxies uh, from in the high redshift universe, so a redshift uh, beyond uh, beyond two, so that's at most three billion years uh, after the after the Big Bang, and so they had this the this survey of these disc spiral galaxies, and there was one of them that that sort of stuck out uh, among the group. And and those the follow up analysis uh, using optical data from, from Hubble uh, and spectroscopic data using Keck, and it's really so the so the, the confluence of of all these sources that they find that this is actually the an example of a ring galaxy in the early universe with, with beyond a redshift of two.
1: All right, we're and, going to show this uh, this cool video.
4: Right, and so the article they ha- has this sort of this great example of how you get ring galaxies. Um, so, like, as the video is playing now, so you see this sort of uh, smaller galaxy colliding head-on with the with the host disc galaxy, and you get this propagating density wave that goes out uh, in the in the plane of the disc. Uh, and so, and so, these are so. This is how you form ring galaxies, and this, and it's through this formation mechanism that that results in ring galaxies being exceedingly rare in the universe.
1: And so, you know, just looking at the at the shape of that um, of that collision there, like, it clearly just made a punch right through the center of the larger spiral galaxy. And so that's the key. Right. Like, in in every other kind of interaction, you're going to get them tearing each other apart and, and sort of causing all the star formation and whatever, depending on the size. But in this case, you've got this bullseye, just one galaxy punching right through the center of the other one and kind of knocking out its its center and causing those those density waves
4: yep that's exactly it so so usually when you have these collisions like there's always like the complicated angles or it may be the galaxy may be swiping and all that so so with the so how you get a ring galaxy is very simple like you have this thin spiral galaxy and then you have sort of a, a perturbing object going straight through the center causing those propagating waves
1: and so why was that so surprising to see early on in the universe?
4: Right. So the reason why this this is so interesting, uh, at least in my view, is if you if you have a ring out, gal- if you have ring galaxies early on in the universe, that mean, that must mean you, you have those massive thin spiral galaxies to begin with for that for that to occur, because the, the ring fraction so that the number of ring galaxies you have in the local in the local universe is about one in 10,000 galaxies. And the reason why is because that interaction that we 're talking about having a galaxy going straight through is pretty rare mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and also these structures that you get the rings are short lived so you have to catch it at the right time and you also have the right rea- you also have to have the right reaction
1: and i mean is it right. is it surprising that the galaxies themselves like like you need to have a fairly mature spiral galaxy to even have this kind of of shape, and so it 's sort of like uh, to the key to having to be able to see this is you had to start with a galaxy that was already fairly well developed that early on. Right. Otherwise you wouldn't get that kind of a structure. So it's almost right. uh, it's funny, it's interesting to be able to see. You can you can just see the 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 wreckage and then be able to know almost like the history of everything that happened up until that point. I mean so so the so the thing that i think
4: is the next step and and what i'm really interested interested in is what is the ring fraction through cosmic time and so if you so if you at a point in the early universe where things were more compact or merger rates were more common does that translate into a larger ring fraction and one right of the, and so one of the conclusions from this paper even though they only have one discovery based on the volume uh, of galaxies that that they surveyed is that they find a constant ring fraction or, or else, or in other words, the ring fraction in the early universe seems to be about the same as the as the ring fraction you're getting now, and so that may sound counterintuitive at first because if you would expect if there were more mergers, then you should have a higher ring fraction, but it's the but what determines the ring fraction is not only the merger rate but also the prevalence of those massive spirals. Right. I- and so the, those two those two forces, are sort of acting in concert, that give you the ring fraction. Right. And so, so, so you can sort of use the ring fraction as sort of a as a proxy uh, for galaxy assembly uh, and for the prevalence of spiral galaxies in the universe.
1: And I guess that was my next question: was was can we use this to probe the structure of the early universe?
4: Well, yeah, that's, so that's the goal there, because because the ring fraction has encoded has encoded in it those those two uh, interesting features of, of galaxy assimilation, which is the merger rate and the prevalence of those thin massive spiral galaxies. and so that's why i think in sort of researching further the 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 ring fraction is really important for for galaxy evolution and for the history of, of hierarchical accretion and then so forth.
1: I mean are there are there other objects like that that you would see early on in the universe at like at the very limits of what Hubble is capable of seeing like I know they're like seeing einstein rings gives you a natural telescope to see farther into space than you could normally but it doesn't necessarily decide what it is that you're going to be looking at but you see something like this it it just gives you a pile of information about what happened to going on in the early universe are there more of this kind of thing
4: Right, so so it's interesting because uh, ring galaxies are a like they're they're a purely a dynamical effect, and so just from seeing it, you can sort of infer this whole sort of rich history of the of the environment and, and so forth. So there, there are other dynamical features you can look for. Uh, so one of them is tidal streams. So if you find the, the, these streams of stars uh, sort of in the halos of these galaxies, that's also indicative of, of a past formation history, which uh, which tells you more about about the environment the galaxy lived in, uh, there's also shells, which are which which are kind of like rings, but they're, but they're hard to envision. But sort of like these shells propagating from the center of the galaxy, that's also indicative of past accretion events. And so the, there's these there are all these tiny minor morphological features of galaxies that sort of give you an inkling of where they're coming from, and have implications for the cosmology.
1: Arjoun is asking, could this lead to galaxies losing their supermassive black holes? It looks violent.
4: Ooh, interesting question. Uh, tentatively, I, I would have to say yes, right? Because if you if you had like this massive object going straight to the center, that that should certainly shuffle <laughs> up uh, what's happening in the core of the massive galaxy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. There's your next paper. Uh, awesome. Chris, that's fa- absolutely fascinating. I, I love this kind of thing because it's both this really cool extreme event, but also a very useful tool for measurement, which is like my favorite thing. Just galaxies crashing together, but also uh, yardsticks.
0: And nice to look at.
1: And, and really great. Well, the the You're one good. in Chris, Chris's wall, for sure, the, uh, you know, the ones that are far away are these little smudges. Um, all right, Beth, we're going back to Neptune.
2: Yes, we're going back to Neptune. It's about time. So this week, uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory announced that they've submitted an entry into NASA's Discovery Program. This program allows scientists and engineers to submit a pro- you know, put together a team, submit a proposal for a potential planetary science mission. And in this case, they've entered one that they've called Trident. There's a joke here. I'll get to that. Um, <laughs> amazingly, this is not a backronym of any sort. Okay,
1: yeah, just Trident.
2: Um, yeah, just Trident. Yeah. Um, but the reason for the name—I mean, aside from the fact that it's Neptune and Neptune's symbol is a trident—they're taking a three-pronged approach to this mission.
1: So that's, that's like a backronym.
2: It kinda is, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, what they want to do is they their goal is to spend 13 days at Triton, uh, which is Neptune's biggest moon. Um, basically, they're Looked at images from Voyager 2 that are 30 years old and said, we need to go back because Voyager saw icy plumes coming from Triton's surface. And, of course, we're all about those icy plumes right now, and it's all very exciting. And there's a couple of things that are weird about Triton. Triton is rotating. Its orbit goes the backwards direction from Neptune's rotation. Yeah. So that's one thing. Um, the surface looks really young and um, fresh. There's very few craters. So, and I mean fresh by geologic time scales. So, they want to send a mission back and they want to basically spend a couple weeks taking pictures, running instruments, and they want to figure out what's going on with this moon and if there's actually an ocean underneath, like we've seen with Enceladus and Europa, um, what's causing the resurfacing. And also, it has a very active ionosphere. That's um, kind of surprising, considering how far it is from the sun. So they want to find out what's going on that causes that
0: to happen.
1: I mean, it's funny. You know, we're also familiar with the geysers on Enceladus and the and the similar features on Europa. But I think Triton was like the original place where these kinds of features were discovered. Back in 1986, they first saw these hints of these of these geysers uh in the in the pictures they were taking of of triton and so um it's kind of surprising to me that hasn't been as high a priority i guess it's because it's harder to get to than than europa or or enceladus um uh but 13 days at at triton i can you explain the the flight path because that sounds a little funny that you would go there but then you would only stay there for 13 days
2: I'm not actually sure on the, the flight path when there. So basically, and this is one of those, Pamela would hate me talking about a mission that hasn't even been selected, let alone launched. Um, but the She's proposed not here. Launch, I know. The yeah. proposed launch date is October 2025 um, with a backup of October 2026. That's so I, soon. I know.
1: 2025 but, is not long.
2: Yeah, but it, it, uh, it takes advantage of this once in a 13-year window for an alignment with Jupiter. And then it would get to Jupiter
1: in
2: 2038. To Jupiter?
1: Yeah. Well, it would get to to Triton via via
2: Jupiter. Via Jupiter. Okay. So it would, right. So we
1: would do a a gravitational assist at Jupiter and then get out to, right. In by 2038, but a 13 day encounter. That's, that seems, it just seems weird to me. Like, is it, is it a flyby?
2: I didn't, it didn't seem like it was a flyby, but I couldn't find any information in there on what the the orbit is.
1: Does it remain in the, um, yeah, in the orbit? Like, I am, I'm confused now. I hadn't, I hadn't gotten this far. I just saw.
2: Yeah, I, I couldn't find any information on what the actual orbit was. It just said 13 days at Triton. And I'm like,
1: does anybody, uh, does anybody know that or? Okay, there you go. Dana saying it is a flyby. Uh, yeah, okay. So, like, think um, New Horizons.
2: Yeah, but a bit more time. <laughs> sure,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, but, I mean, I don't know, though, right? Like, if it's going to be a flyby, then you get one shot. You get... You get a bunch of pictures as you're coming close, and then you... Like, are they just measuring 13 days of when you start to see it on the horizon to when you get close-up pictures? And and I'm assuming they're going to take pictures of the part that they they haven't seen. I mean, I'm
2: excited, but I... There are cameras involved, so that's exciting.
1: A flyby has been done. It's time to send an orbiter, so... So I'm, I'm, I'm with
2: you. I'm gonna, I, I'm, I'm of the belief every ass giant needs an orbiter.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm gonna wait for a better orbiter. I think I'm gonna wait for a better mission. But still, I mean, uh, yes, I'll take a flyby of Triton if, if, if necessary. If that's what we, if that's all we get, I mean, these are these tiny little discovery programs. Uh, they'd can be all right.
4: Imagine, can you just imagine like the like a high res image of Neptune though?
1: Oh yeah, yes, please. Yeah. So do the same, like grab more Neptune images with the modern equipment and, and modern, you know, and nice high-res images of, of Triton and, and hopefully some other moons as well as it comes through the system. But, but I just, Cassini has spoiled me so much, wow. right? Uh, just around and, Cassini, and around Cassini and just, around, right? Just taking image after such image. Such
2: an amazing mission. Yeah. I miss Cassini.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We just, That's all I can think about. But still, okay, fine. I'm excited. Uh, Thanks, Beth. Uh, All right, Brian. Cosmology. It's all wrong.
3: Cosmology and and what we don't understand. (laughs) So uh, this new study is looking at what we call the standard model of cosmology, which is sometimes called the LCDM model. Uh, CDM stands for cold and dark matter. Uh, L stands for lambda, which is a symbol in the general relativity equation that describes the universe as a whole. Uh, L is, lambda is basically the cosmological constant that Einstein first introduced to keep the universe stable and then became related to dark energy and the Hubble constant. So to understand the model... Um, we really kind of have to know what the value of this lambda is. And if you know the value of the Hubble constant, then you know lambda. Or if you know lambda, you know the Hubble constant. So, So it all comes down to trying to measure what this Hubble constant is. And the Hubble constant determines the rate at which the universe expands. Basically, the structure in space and time causes the universe to expand at this certain rate that's related to the Hubble constant. And there's several ways that you can measure what that Hubble constant is. The original one is to look at things like Cepheid variables in nearby galaxies and look at their Doppler effects. So they are moving away from us at a certain distance. Their light is red-shifted. And then you can use variable stars to find out um, how far away those galaxies are. Well, this has continued all the way out at ever greater distances to things like supernova. Uh, a type 1A supernova is a standard candle. If you know its brightness, you know uh, from its apparent brightness what its actual brightness is. You can find the distance, and then you can measure the redshift, and that's how you find the Hubble constant. It is basically a ratio of distance and redshift. Uh, so so the supernova way is, is kind of the, the way that won the Nobel Prize. It's the way that we kind of think of measuring the expansion of the universe. But there are other ways, and one of them is to look at, say, the cosmic microwave background. So uh, this background heat left over from from Big Bang uh, has little variations in it. And the, the scale of those variations as we see them now depends upon how much the universe has expanded since that initial hot, dense state. So if you look at the scale and see where are the most scale of fluctuations, at what size are most fluctuations, you can find out, oh, well, that means that the universe has expanded this much. And then you can find out what the Hubble constant is. Right. So that's all fine and good. Um, if the standard model is correct, these two values should give basically the same result. And it's turned out that as we've made, made ever more precise measurements, they have become ever more in disagreement. So basically, if you look at the uh, cosmic microwave background, it gives a value of about uh, 68 kilometers per second per megaparsec, which means that's the speed which you're gaining in the expansion for a megaparsec of distance. Uh, if you do the supernova measurement, it comes out to about 72 now, early in the day, their uncertainties overlap, so that wasn't a problem, but we're kind of getting to this, where they don't overlap right. anymore.
1: Yeah, we've so talked you know, about this several times in the past, right? We've talked about this several yeah, times. Yeah, that the... So, that the and,
3: and, of course, what I would always say is what we need are more ways to measure this. Right. We need new ways to measure this. Well, it turns out that there is a new way to measure it that's that's been published, and it uses a completely independent way... From the other two
1: so, so let's ex- explain the way first before we get to the uh, to the result
3: so the, so the way it's done is to use what's known as a astrophysical maser so more people are familiar with laser light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. maser is microwave amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. It is a microwave laser and it's emitted by water. Basically, what happens is that when water is orbiting something like a black hole, a supermassive black hole in the center of a galaxy, it gets excited, and it's in in just the right configuration that it triggers a cascade. So you get this stimulated emission of water microwaves, and it just happens naturally, whereas here on Earth it happens in a lab. The nice thing about that is that because it's a a laser, basically— um, lasers have a monochromatic color, so they're a single color, and, and they're very coherent. So they basically emit light at a very precise wavelength.
1: Right. And so we're seeing a, a laser, the color is the color of water in microwaves.
3: Right. Yeah. Basically. So, so what happens is you can then, because you know that this is water vapor stuff, this is a this is water laser or water maser, you know what that wavelength is. So you can measure the the redshift from that galaxy and, you know, that supermassive black hole in the center of the galaxy. You measure that really well. So you've got the redshift.
1: Okay. and one thing. Right. But I mean, we were already measuring the redshift to galaxies just looking, I mean, this is what Hubble did, right? To be able to measure the redshift to the Cepheid variables. So how yes. is this, is this more accurate than the Cepheid variables?
3: It, it is somewhat more accurate, but but the real key is that, you not only have to have redshift, you also have to have some way of doing distance. And usually, distance is things like variable stars or tuberculosis or things like that. What's nice about this is that this material is orbiting the black hole. So, as it's spiraling around, one edge of this accretion disk is coming towards us and is blue shifted a bit relative to the overall redshift.
2: Mm-hmm. So, it's okay. less
3: redshifted, if you say. Right. On the right. other right. end, it's moving away from us and so it's redshifted
1: compared to the the overall redshift red of the entire galaxy. The galaxy right so
3: basically you get the whole thing is redshifted and one side is a little bit less redshifted and the other side is a little bit more redshifted so if you actually look at the signal what you get is you get a triple peak right and it's very easy to identify but you can make then a very precise measurement of how fast this is rotating at different distances so that means that you know, oh, it's, this is close to the black hole, Is moving this fast. Out here, it's moving this fast. Out here, it's moving this fast. So you can actually find exactly what the size of that right. uh, emission is with the lasers.
1: And you can pinpoint essentially the absolute center of the dead center of every galaxy that you want to look at.
3: Right. But if you know then what the actual size of that accretion disk is, and you compare it with the apparent size in the sky, you're now using size to measure the distance. Right. It's just like looking at a tree. If it's always the same size, you know how far away the tree is because you know how big it
1: is. Okay, and then you're comparing that with the with the redshift to to make sure the two match up.
3: Right. Right. And so what you get is you get both size and redshift all from water masers.
1: Wow. That's completely
3: independent of the uh, Doppler of the galaxy supernovas and completely independent of the cosmic microwave background.
1: All right, so now we've set up the methodology, and and so this I mean this sounds like a very accurate way to decide who's the winner, and the winner is
3: neither. (laughs) (laughs) The the CMB says sixty eight. The uh, supernova method basically centers around seventy two. Uh, this method centers around 75, 76, wow. could be as high as 78. So it's it's even higher. It's basically this new result has made everything worse.
1: <laughs> so it is not splitting the difference. It's not saying, okay. It's not splitting no. the
3: difference and it's not agreeing with one or the other. It's saying you're both are all wrong. Brian, what's the what's the error bar? Uh, it is, I want to say it's, let's see, it's. Three and a half on either side. So, so basically the um, 72 and, and this result, the, the supernova and this result just overlap. They just barely cross. But the best value is way outside of that. So, So, you can say they agree, but yeah, they agree, like a freshman physics lab agrees right so, <laughs> i 've got an overlap i
1: 'm counting it so so when we when we consider the the distances these are, these are measuring right the the cosmic microwave background radiation that 's measuring the very beginning of the universe thirteen. Point, I guess now it doesn't matter. Who knows how far away that is? Um, right. uh, not thirteen point eight. You know, some number that could be more or less than thirteen point eight. But then you compare right. that to the, you know, the supernova. They're more recent. Where do these Mazars sit on the on the time spectrum of the universe?
3: They're in the same basic range as as the supernovas. They're not quite as far. But one of the problems is that because you had the CMB and then you had the supernovas, you could argue, well, maybe it was different over time. The CMB is a really far distance. And the supernovas, although they're billions of light years, are closer. Yeah. Well, this new method is in the same range. And so they overlap in distance and they don't agree. Right. So, so there isn't a resolution
1: for them. Right. but But I guess with if you've got two methods both of which are fairly accurate both of which are attempting to measure the same rough period of time that that seems to lend support to the idea that maybe and we've talked about this again a couple of weeks ago this idea that maybe it's the type 1a supernova that in fact we don't understand them as well as we thought we did <clears throat> now we understand this right
3: right but there's there was another one that I had actually written about a, about a week before that that was an, even a fourth method that, that was using uh, basically the scale at which galaxies cluster. Right. It's called the Baryon Oscillation. And so what you get is a scale of those. Basically, as the universe expands, galaxies tend to cluster, but the gaps between them get bigger. By looking at the overall scale of that, you now have a measure of the rate of expansion, that one falls in, that's even closer. So it was even a shorter distance into the galaxy, into the universe. And it was in between the CMB and the supernova one. Okay. It doesn't agree with this either.
1: Okay. So what's the explanation then? Wait, there's also another method you can. Oh, sure. Yeah. There's a couple of others. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Go ahead. Wait, you can use the, so, so this one was sort of, uh, Sort of used after the, the, the neutron merger discovery with the gravitational waves. Because if you have a kilonova, which is that gives you, you can get a redshift from that, and you can get a distance. Uh, from the gravitational waves. And so if you have the redshift and you have the distance, you can solve for the, for the Hubble parameter that way.
1: And, I mean, if we get to more observations at farther away, I know with some of those future observatories, we'll, we'll eventually turn up every kilonova explosion in the in the observable universe. Suddenly you've got a completely independent multi-messenger uh, method of calculating. That would probably solve it once and for all, wouldn't it, if you could measure all those kilonovas going off?
3: It it what what's really happening is that as we're getting more data, it's getting worse. <laughs> <laughs> because it was basically we're gonna have different methods, we're gonna have there's like half a dozen measures of yeah. doing this. Yeah. And they're all kind of all over the map. And and what's happening is we're getting more data, which is great, but what's happening is that all the uncertainties are just getting smaller. Yeah. We're not getting this kind of oh, we were actually supposed to be right. here. Yeah. What we're getting is this and now, okay, now, not not only do they disagree, they now disagree harder, which is (laughs) really problematic for understanding
1: things. Okay. So, so what are the creative ideas that astronomers are coming up with to explain the diverging results?
3: You know, the, the, I mean, it starts getting really kind of crazy in, in the ideas that people are coming up with. So maybe it's, axions maybe dark matter is somehow connected to dark energy so they're two sides of the same coin and they're in the model they're fouling each other up um you know it it could be that that there are somebody's proposed like quantum fluctuations that would affect the rate of, of shift from the light you're you're basically Kind of going into let's throw out a whole bunch of standard physics and come up with other right. whatever wild idea we can come up with.
1: I mean, it, it sounds to me like, like before the more recent accumulation, like if you just have the two measurements, the one at the beginning and the one at the end, they're different rates, then the answer is, oh, then it's just changing. That it was this rate at the beginning and now the rate is changing now and there's like some kind of smooth change from the beginning to the end. That's easy-ish to wrap your head around. But the fact that multiple methodologies which are very accurate that are are measuring the expansion rate of the universe at the same time in kind of different ways, they're not agreeing and yet they're all very accurate. And so you can't come up with a simple – explanation of, oh, it's just that the, the speed of the universe goes up and down, it's something weirder. Right.
3: So so if the speed of the universe goes up and down in different parts, then the cosmological constant and Einstein's idea is absolutely wrong. You, you can't have that within relativity.
1: But Einstein um, was right. That's something that we always say. That's one we, we typically say, but...
3: You know, there could be things like, there could be a fifth force, something they call quintessence, that that is some matter that gives off properties of energy in the same way that dark matter gives off properties of gravity. You know, we see the effects of dark matter from gravity. We could see the effects of this from dark energy. Uh, So
1: so then, I mean, if I was to come up with a theory to try to explain this what little boxes would it need to check
3: uh it would need to right now it would need to account for why different measurements why different methods give dramatically different results and and also from what we can tell up to this point why they don't have these dramatically different speeds right. in different
1: directions. So it, so it would need to explain so it would need to explain why masers work differently than supernova explosions work differently from gravitational waves work differently from the cosmic microwave background radiation that isn't it just speeding up and slowing down because it would literally have to explain each of these observations why they look the way they do to come up with a number. Right.
3: What, one way to do it is to say you would have to explain why light behaves differently than light.
1: <laughs> why, why light behaves differently than light.
2: Okay, that one actually broke my brain. Yeah,
3: yeah. Because <laughs> microwave lasers are just light. Yeah. The redshift is is should be exactly the same as it would be from the light of galaxies, and we can do those from distinct energy levels, so that should be exactly the same. You can tweak supernovas a bit, but but we know that there's a limit to how much you can tweak them. Right. The microwave laser optical size is straight out of relativity, so you got to throw well, relativity out if you're throwing that out. Right. Um. You know the cosmic microwave background is is a pretty standard and robust model, so you'd have to throw parts of that out.
1: Yeah, could it be dust? Can I just can I just answer this right away and just say that it's dust? In this case, it can't be. Oh, because it's usually dust. It's always dust. Because in this case,
3: not only is the light um, a single color, it's a single wavelength. It's also coherent so so the scattering takes on a whole different polarization character and stuff that you can account for so so this is a very nice way of measuring uh cosmic expansion yeah and it doesn't rely on a supernova model you don't have to assume that there's a standard candle because you're not doing brightness you're doing size and the dust even though it could affect the brightness won't affect the size and the size is straight out of gravity. So it's just this stuff is moving this fast because it's in free fall.
1: <laughs> so if you had to place your bets today, what do you like? Or is it just is there just nothing?
3: It's it's hard to say what I like because you know what I what I wanna see is I wanna see the radical theory. Yeah. You know, if if it's if it's quintessence, then that means there has to be something just like dark matter has to be some other particle that isn't part of the standard particle physics model. There has to be something else, whether it's axions or or sterile neutrinos or something. Um, Dark energy would have to be something else yet again. It would have to be a whole new thing. That excites me because it would point us to a direction of radically different physics.
1: Yeah. Chris, this is in your wheelhouse too. What, uh, Place your bets.
4: I, I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> I, think I think I'm with Brian in, in the sense that I, I would love for all the physics to be upended within my lifetime. I'm, I'm sure that'd be great uh, for my career. Uh, and, and also because like the implications of this also they, they trickle into like all of cosmology as well like how we build structure how structure forms it's cuz it's also dependent on the on our choice of lava parameter and and on the choice of dark energy so if you throw that stuff out this also has huge implications for how we think like galaxy clusters form like how and like how uh, galaxies like the time scales of when galaxies form and so the So if you pull, if you pull the card out from the bottom, like all the entire, (laughs) entire house. Right, and you I'm, say I'm glad to be alive. I'm glad to be alive during the
1: sun. That's the thing that I always find so funny is that people always say, "Oh, astronomers, you know, it's like a religion." They just like they don't, you know, they just they don't have no reason, and they and they don't want to be challenged in their theories. But I, you guys are giddy. I would describe you guys as giddy right now at the possibility of exciting new ideas in in cosmology and astronomy, and an opportunity to see some fresh ideas. Uh, which is the exact opposite, I think, from what people expect. Uh, Dana, I'll give you a chance to weigh in, too. Uh, place your bets. Oh, you're muted.
0: I'm muted. I, I don't think there, there are enough data in the uh, Maser thing to rival the huge amounts of data in the other two uh, categories, and so I wouldn't give it as much weight as the other two.
1: So you think that Einstein was right. You're still right.
0: I I think yeah. I, I'll put my bets on Einstein. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it, it has been a pretty safe bet for a long time, so it does make sense. Uh fantastic. Well, I, guys, I really appreciate that. Uh, Beth, I don't know. Do you have, do you, have a, do you want to have a take as well?
2: I'm going to stick with Einstein because every, <laughs> Einstein time, someone, was right. every some time someone sends me some yeah. email about Einstein is wrong. I just kind of yeah. laugh and go, yeah, okay."
1: Yeah. And mark my words, it's dust. <laughs> All right, Beth, you're on my screen. Uh, if people want to, what are you working on? Where can people find out more?
2: Um, tonight we are hosting, the SETI Institute is hosting a virtual talk on planetary defense and asteroids. So you can go to SETI.org and uh, click on that link. I think we still have some reservation spaces available to watch it. And you can find me pretty much everywhere on social media at PlanetaryPan.
1: Fantastic. Chris? Chris?
4: Uh, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at, at the Real C car. Um, I haven't been doing much lately because the, the world is kind of <laughs> shut down for the moment, but I promise at some point in the future I'll be active again. So follow me on Twitter. Fantastic. Brian.
3: Uh, you can find me on Universe Today or articles go up. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Koberline. And, uh, you can find my own website at
1: com. Fantastic. And, and, uh, Dana, you stuck around. So, uh, let people know where they can find out more about what you're working on. I
0: think, in, uh, the SETI Institute website has a list of their scientists, but, um, uh, and some of my articles, but also on YouTube, there are two lectures I gave at the Silicon Valley, uh, uh public lecture series. Um, uh, and, uh, I think, yeah. And also, if you look at Sophia Airborne Observatory, Airborne Astronomy Ambassadors on YouTube, you will find um, recordings of several of our uh, teacher groups and uh, what they were doing and what they had to say. And uh, I'm in the background. Fantastic. But the teachers were in the foreground, as they should be.
1: Excellent. All right. I'm going to put everybody uh, back up on the screen. Um, I've got a new QA coming out tomorrow, uh, as well as... Um, Uh, An episode on Proxima Centauri's planets uh, coming up at the end of the week. So stick around for that over on my YouTube channel. Um... And then another star party on Sunday night. So if you want to see uh, live views of the night sky, come and join us on my YouTube channel. All right, thanks everybody for joining us. Thank you to all the moderators, both on Twitch and on YouTube. We really appreciate this. We couldn't do this without you. Remember, go to the weekly space hangout crew, WSHcrew.space. And if you enjoyed this episode, give it a thumbs up. I never nag for a thumbs up, but I thought that was a particularly great episode all around, and so I think you should give it a thumbs up. All right, thanks everyone, and we. We'll see all of you next week.
2: Bye-bye. Bye.
1: You are listening to the 365 Days of Astronomy podcast.
0: The 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is produced by the Planetary Science Institute. Audio post production by Richard Drum. Bandwidth donated by Libsyn.com and Wizard Media. You may reproduce and distribute this audio for non-commercial purposes. This show is made possible thanks to the generous donations of people like you. Please consider supporting our show on Patreon.com forward slash 365 Days of Astronomy and get access to bonus content. After 10 years, the three. 365 Days of Astronomy podcast is entering its second decade of sharing important milestones in space exploration and astronomy discoveries. Join us and share your story. Until tomorrow, goodbye.